Morning. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 8 verse 16 through chapter 9 verse 15. I believe it's behind me. Yep. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your, zeal has, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that, it might, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of their submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. This is the word of God. So if you're with us, uh, it's your first time at Redemption. We've been going through a series um, called Authenticity, and it's going through Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. Um, and last week we talked about an, an example in generosity and uh, the motivation for that great example of generosity. And um, 
This week, uh, I wanted to focus on uh, the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9. Um, remember, it was the gospel that fueled that generosity through and through um, and, and allowed for this great, uh, you know, as we just read, as the scripture is fresh on our mind, this uh, ministry of service, that's, that, that diakonos, that, 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 that's where we get like, you know, this whole idea of what it means to be a deacon. So as we, as we experience, as we witness uh, the ordination of new, new officers, of, of properly handling uh, caring for uh, the needs of the church. Um, that's all right there. Um, so it's just an amazing chapter. And, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for uh, bringing uh, new officers in this church to serve uh, all of us, to, uh, to better be stewards of uh, this church, Father, that you have created by your gospel. I pray this morning for uh, for your servant, you would help him uh, to uh, be faithful to your word, and uh, that your word would be fruitful by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So about uh, 85 million Americans um, will not come into a church service like this one today. Um, 85 million Americans aren't even thinking about coming into church today. Um, and among that large group of people who identified at as uh, unchurched or dechurched. Um, one of the biggest reasons where we are where we are today is that most object to the fact that American churches put way too much emphasis on money. Um, you know, with all the bells and whistles, the big churches, the fancy screens, the big uh, celebrations, the big events of, of, you know, renting out Qualcomm Stadium, for example, or just the, the it's all this, this huge show. That's a big criticism that a lot of unchurched and teachers people have with church. It's a big reason why they won't come. They think that Christianity is about making money, and uh, most people think Christianity is associated with the big and the beautiful and the powerful, and doesn't really care for widows and orphans and immigrants and refugees and minority communities. And tons of studies have, have come out in the last 10 years showing this. Churches fill stadiums, collect money, keep pockets full with zero accountability. That's a huge barrier. It's a huge problem for a lot of people. And I wanted to point that out because there's great abuse with money in our time. I'm not going to name any people or highlight any examples. I think that I'm sure you have some example in your mind right now. Um, if you don't, you can read the newspaper tomorrow. I'm sure you'll find something. Um, and Jesus once said something along the lines of, you can't serve both God and mammon, money. Right? He said that. Um, and the American church has proved that it has mishandled um, that very thing. Um, but just because money is misused, and, and it doesn't mean that we stop um, with seeking how God's word applies to the right use, the proper use of money. Uh, so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater there, uh, but we seek to, to find God's wisdom and apply it to this particular subject, um, both as individuals and as a church as a whole. And we have to really look at our use of money because the Bible talks about money a lot. A lot, actually. And, and the Bible, the thing is, God confronts our materialism and he also confronts all the subtle ways that we uh, try to downplay money's spiritual pull, its, its spiritual significance in our lives. Uh, we do that in a lot of ways. So, so when God calls us to give generously... God is digging very deep, not just into our pockets, not just into our wallets or our purses, 
Um, but he's digging even deeper into the very depths of our hearts. What do you really love? If you love God more than money, right? Prove it. Um, so do we love more? Do we love God more than the dollar bill? Prove it. Um, in, in the scripture reading this morning, uh, you heard of Paul sending a team of people to Corinth, uh, including Titus and a few other uh, brothers from Macedonia, to help the church finish its collection to fund this poorer church, or group of churches in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that the church's money is always to be handled with care. Always. Uh, multiple tr- uh, people know about what's going on, and, and they work together to protect Paul against the appearance of extortion. If, so if you read later, chapter 11, um, that's one of the criticisms levied against him. And later, he's accused of embezzlement. Um, he highlights that in chapter 12. Um, also untrue. And Paul avoids the appearance of evil in handling money because it's so easy for abuse and corruption to happen. Um, nothing invites slander more uh, clearly and more, more quickly than um, caring for and managing a public trust or a, you know, a, a large sum of money. Or, or it's, it's why, for example, taxpayers have such a hard time uh, with the use or misuse of you know, what the government does with spending money. We have to take a problem with that, issues. Um, and it's one reason why, as a church, um, why we don't only have one person involved in handling money, but we have many people involved. Um, our session, our elders oversee the handling of money. We have deacons ordained and, and, and deacons appointed to, to manage money. We have a financial director. Um, so it's, it's, it's being handled by a lot of people. We have an annual meeting where the congregation looks at our budget. I mean, uh, you're going to get a VIP glass door you know, access into what my salary is as a pastor and what all of our staff get paid and all of that. I mean, you, you get eyes on all of that. And that's, that's for the, the sake of accountability. That's for the sake of transparency. Um, so that there is no misuse or abuse of our finances. There are no private funds here as a church. Uh, we want to avoid the appearance of evil. As Paul says, verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. Verse 21, for we aim at what's honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. So trusted and known representatives were sent. Um, we don't know who they were. Uh, a lot of commentators say it was, it was Timothy or it was Apollos. Um, we don't know who they were. They, we know that they knew who they were. They were trusted. One guy he describes as being this great preacher. So he was like the, the, the John Chrysostom or the R.C. Sproul or the Billy Graham you know, of the first century. People knew who this guy was for his preaching. And they did this, and, and, and we do this, by having an appointed people to, to, to handle money, um, to avoid criticism and protect the name of God. I know that's a long introduction to, to introduce this. Um, I promise the sermon will not be over 30, 33 minutes. Okay? So hang with me. Um, uh, but they did this for that reason. And, and so um, our generosity, though, is an expression of, of our faith in the God who has provided everything that we need in this life and the next. Um, and there are three great benefits from uh, the end of chapter 8 and, and all of chapter 9 that I want to point out today. Um, and uh, Gospel-driven generosity. Uh, what, what benefits spring from that? Uh, gospel driven generosity um, produces three things. First, gospel-driven generosity produces joy. Second, gospel, gospel-driven generosity 
helps meet the needs of others. And third, gospel generosity glorifies God. So we have three points this morning to look at. Um, I know I've been in a lot of two-point sermons lately, and this this week is a three-point sermon, so there you go. So those people who love three points, here you go. Those people who hate three points, next week probably is going to be a two-point sermon, okay? (laughs) So it's all good. Um, So Paul says their joy will be increased um, through giving. And he claims this in, in verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will be will produce thanksgiving to God. It's verse 11. So gospel generosity actually produces, from gospel generosity springs forth joy. Joy. Now what, what is joy? Uh, but you might be thinking to yourself, though, <laughs> with this whole topic and, and just everything that's, that's thrown at you right now, how could I have joy by giving away money? Or how can I have joy by giving away more of my time? Because, you know, money is measurable. I, I can count how much that is, and it can kind of measure some sense of worth, and I derive that worth or enjoyment from that. Um, so how, how, can I, how can I have joy from getting rid of money uh, or, or losing out on more adventure or making sacrifices or acquiring less? Um, how can that lead me to joy? And I think that's a good question uh, if money can really lead to joy. It's a very good question. So I think we need to test whether or not money can really lead us to joy. Can it? Um, What's the best meal you've ever eaten? Everyone's like thinking, like your taste buds are lit right now. Um, I think of uh, my first time to the East Coast. Uh, My wife took me to Connecticut, and I had like the best pizza I've ever had in my life. It was not Domino's. Uh, it was so good, um, so fresh, so uh, the, 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 the crust was uh, to die for. And then we had, uh, we had uh, 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 Portuguese rolls that were so fresh, they were like soft pillows in my mouth, and like, you know, mortadella cheese, uh, mortadella, uh, fresh mortadella meat, uh, just so many, so many great things. We went to this place uh, called Mazzucato's, and they had delicious cookies. And they also gave me like gelato and this and that. And they're like, oh, you're from California. Here's this, here's that, here's this, here's that. So I was really fat that whole trip. I ate a lot. I was in a food coma for probably two and a half days. I'm not kidding. I was just stuck on the couch. It was that bad. Um, I could not move. But the thing is about all that, right, is um, I've had thousands and thousands of meals since that time of enjoying delicious food. Whoa. Um, so I've had, I've had so many experiences of, you know, different meals since then and not necessarily on par with, right? Why is that? Um, Because my body needs more. Um, As good as those meals were, my body is never satisfied. Still craves more. It still wants more. Money is like food. Uh, It can't make us full forever. As soon as we get full, we want more. First time uh, American billionaire and one of the wealthiest um, men in his own time, uh, J.D. Rockefeller once uh, said when he was asked, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. And, uh, and, and what he said hits on that insatiable desire that we all have of this craving for more. We don't want to say, I have enough. Uh, we want to say, just a dollar more. And that's one side of the spectrum, that we crave material wealth to make us happy. We think, we're convinced that it will make me happy. On the other side, the flip side of that, is that getting rid of material gain is something that's going to make me happy. And so there's materialism on the one hand, right? If I get more, if I get this, I'll be happy. 
There's minimalism on the other. If I get rid of this or that, I'm going to be happy. That message is be free of all money and assets and you'll have joy. But both of those attitudes fail to confront the heart and they fail to really satisfy us. Um, See, as the the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, uh, you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And part of enjoying him is to enjoy everything the giver gives to us. Um, Instead of thanking God for every gift, as materialists, we find ourselves going, is that it? I want more, 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 more. As minimalists, we find ourselves throwing away the good gifts that God gives us, kind of like runaway children. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't need your good gifts. We never thank him for it. And so money promises to give us joy, but it can only rob us of joy if we trust in it. When we lose money or after we spend it all, or if we don't have enough, we can't ever have joy. We can't ever keep that joy. When it's gone, we're deprived. But uh, Cohen's probably thinking, well, I don't have any money, so I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, uh, that, that can't possibly be me. Um, you don't have to have a lot of money to be a greedy person. Um, you can be a greedy person and not have any money. Um, if, if, if money is something that always consumes you, that you're always thinking about it, you're always um, comparing yourself with others, you're on budgets with others and everything else, if that's all you think about, all you dwell on, all your heart longs for, you still love money. So just throwing that out there. So the minimalist mastered, he's mastered by money because he worries about getting rid of money. Or having uh, the appearance, uh, he's worried about the appearance of having too much money, so he has to keep getting rid of it. The materialist is mastered by money because he worries about getting more, 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 more. Both are mastered by something other than God. And this whole series is about authenticity, so let's be real here. Uh, that means that you're worshiping an idol, just being real. <laughs> okay? um, and, 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 and so the question that we have to ask, that I have to ask, is do I find my worth, my significance in or my security in money? The Bible says that if you love money, you're its slave. If you love God, he actually dethrones money from your life. He dislodges it, uh, depromotes it from being CEO in your life, in your life's movie, in your life's story, dethrones it, and gives it uh, the place of servant rather than master. And the very thing that money promised but never could deliver is yours always. That's joy. So money can't give us joy, God can. And one way we can keep uh, from giving money too much power in our lives, too much authority in our lives, is by being generous with money. So the gospel, what God has done in Christ, makes us liberal with our money and our time and our resources. Paul pleaded with the Corinthians to finish giving what they promised to prove that they loved others more than themselves and the idol of money. Um, Chapter 8, verse 24. So money is a useful servant. It's a terrible Lord. It helps us provide for our families. It helps us provide for the needs of others. It helps us care for things. But it's not the end game. Each time we give money to a church fund or uh, to Mercy Ministry or to help our neighbors, serve our neighbors, we are confessing that our wallets, our purses, that money is our servant and God is our master. It's a confession of faith in Christ. And so we give generously because we believe the gospel. God uses that to produce joy in us. That's the first thing. The second thing is that gospel-driven generosity um, helps others. That's the second thing I want us to consider. Gospel generosity will meet the needs of real people around us. Real people. 
we don't have time to read the entire passage again, so I want to summarize here. Paul encourages the Corinthians to be generous by reminding them that God loves a cheerful giver. Some of you probably heard the phrase or, 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 or been to church before where you've heard that, or maybe you haven't been to church in a long time or you've never really been to church, but you've, this is your first time, and, uh, but you've heard Christians asking for money and they use God loves a cheerful giver, okay? So you've probably heard that statement before. What you have not heard, though, is probably this. And I'm going to totally geek out here and nerd out here for a second, so there's a fair warning. Um, Paul often quote, quotes passages from the Bible written at the time. Uh, that's the, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek called the Septuagint. And whenever Paul does this, it's helpful to go back and read the original passages that he quotes to understand the full context of what he's saying. Uh, we have to do this because Paul and the churches that are hearing this letter read aloud um, of this time period, they read the Bible in Greek. And so these quotes come from that Bible. So we're going to take uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7, uh, which says this, um, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that's where we get that common phrase that we hear. First quotation in this verse comes from Exodus 25, verse 2 emphasizes the willingness part, right? The, the willingness comes from the heart. When you read Exodus, that's what you see. That's the citation uh, from Exodus. Then the next citation comes from uh, picking up on the, the English word that we have there, not reluctantly. That comes from Deuteronomy, uh, ver, uh, chapter 15, verse 10. And then the third phrase comes, and that's where we, we see it, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, where does that come from? That actually comes from Proverbs 22, verse 8, not in the English Bible, uh, but in the Greek Bible. So I mentioned that, the, the Septuagint. Um, if you look to, to Proverbs uh, 22.8 in your English Bible, you're not going to see it there. But the Septuagint reads this. It says, God blesses a cheerful and a generous man. So it's almost a direct quotation of that same verse, right? And so cross-references in our Bible probably go to Exodus 25, which emphasizes that willingness part, but don't actually hit on the cheerful giver part right here. I geek out for a second to highlight how Paul strings together a whole army of Old Testament passages, right, to show us what it looks like. He paints this beautiful picture of what a generous person actually looks like, what this person does with their time, what this person does with their resources, providing for the poor. That's another string of passages that he, that he hits on. Those who have an abundance give out of that abundance. And that's the kind of person that the gospel creates, a generous and a just person. We're part of this new creation, a creation brought into existence by this generous benefactor, this generous servant who became Lord. I'm talking about Jesus. Again, so later in, in verse 9, he quotes Psalm 112 again, again, emphasizing this person who gives money to the poor. And then uh, verse 10 climaxes with a quotation from Isaiah 55. We read Isaiah 55 Isaiah 55 is all about God as this great host. And he's inviting people to, to eat and to feast. And he provides for them. So Paul is encouraging people to be liberal givers of money because God is a generous liberal giver himself. And that's who God has made you to be because of his gospel. And that's what authentic Christianity looks like. I have more to say. I'm going to pause on all that for the sake of time. So God's a giver, and he makes us into a gift-giving people. I'm going to read verse 12. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Okay, so one of the concerns that the Corinthians had, and, and maybe you have similar reservations right now about giving money or giving time, uh, but the concerns that they had was, what if they gave much to Jerusalem and then they wouldn't have enough to provide for their own needs in Corinth, in Achaia? What if they didn't have enough money to go around? And, uh, hey, life in the first century is unpredictable. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, so Paul confronts that fear uh, in verse 10, saying, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He doesn't want our, our fear for lack to be the reason that we withhold generosity to others. And so he affirms that God can and he will provide for all of our needs, just as he's doing for these poor Christians in Jerusalem. And so, I mean, you might be worried right now, how do I give much when I have so little? We really don't, you know, we're barely making ends meet. We're living paycheck to paycheck. How do I do this? Um, Start somewhere, very small, and even think about using your time. You know, I have an extra hour this week, you know. I'm going to be generous with my time. I'm going to be serving others with my time. Um, But you'll have no lack because God is taking care of you. Trust him. The gospel message is not a message about self-seeking, but self-giving. He who is rich became poor for our sakes that we might be rich in him. To live in any other way denies the truth of that gospel reality that Jesus came not to be served, not to make more money, um, but he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the great work that he's done. Mark 10, 45. And so gospel generosity produces joy. That's the first thing. Gospel generosity helps others. And the final thing I want to talk about this morning is that God... Gospel generosity glorifies God. Actually brings glory, greater glory to him. So verse 13, look with me. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Verse 14. Will they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And finally, verse 15. This kind of climax, this highlight right here. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Your gospel, gospel generosity is an act that brings glory to God, greater glory to God. Verses 11 and, and 12 put this great emphasis on many thanksgivings rising up to him, that he is honored, he's praised through generous giving. His churches, his people are cared for with joy as each saint's cared for. But God gets the glory for all that giving. He gets the glory for producing joy in us. He gets the glory for all the glory, all the glorifying that happens as a result of all of this. And so when we generously give, we're, we're responding to what God has done for us in Christ, and we're confident that he's going to take care of us and all of others in our midst in the future. I want you to notice something here. Uh, your generosity is also an opportunity for others to glorify God. Something that he points out, verse 11, I mean, verse 13, sorry. They will glorify God. Um, When Christians give generously, and people see it expressed in tangible ways, the poor are ministered to. Widows and orphans are actually cared for. When homeless children going to school with with school supplies, like Walker Elementary, uh, a group of churches along with us, we all partnered together to to supply actual school supplies for, uh, you know, a a needy community. Um, that is a witness to the world. The watching world, de-churched and unchurched, 
see that and go, wow, something's different about these people. And that gives us a fantastic, beautiful chance to say, yeah, well, that something that's different is actually not because of us. <laughs> it's because of what God has done in our midst because of his son, Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done. That is actually changing our reality and how we are moved to give our time and our resources and our energies for the sake of others, for the sake of our own communities, for the sake of this, this city that we live in. And so these, these you know, works of generosity are, are proof that God has raised Jesus from the dead and is so generously moved in our hearts and our minds and our hands that we actually want to do something different with our lives. We want to see God glorified and the gospel of Christ magnified in the city. And so all of our best giving with our time and our talent and our treasure, it's only a small imitation of God's abundant, beautiful, far exceedingly beyond anything we can ask or think or imagine kind of generosity of that inexpressible gift of God in Jesus Christ who gave himself for the forgiveness of our sins, who gave himself so generously in his life and his death, in his glorious and triumphant resurrection in which he invites us into, even now, creating this new creation, this new cosmos that is so much more beautiful than what we see around right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that we have always in Christ. Thank you for providing for our needs, uh, giving abundantly, giving so generously to us. Uh, we thank you, Father, that, that, that in our abundance we're able to provide for uh, the needs of others as each um, is able. We thank you, Father, for uh, the glory of who you are. You're a glorious God. You're a great God. You are a benefactor. You're a giver, and you've given so much in your Son. And it makes us givers. It makes us generous people in Christ. All for what you've done in Christ, Father. We thank you. We thank you too, Lord, that we have opportunities in such small ways, such incomparably, there's no way to compare compared to your glorious beauty, your great generosity, your perfect, flawless generosity, but yet we are allowed to be partakers and imitators in that. Through faith in Christ, by the power of your spirit, we're able to more and more look more like you, our Father. You're a good Father. We thank you for your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name.